Welcome to episode number two of the Truth Quest podcast, where we are on a relentless pursuit of the truth, no matter where it takes us. Today, we're going to talk about the truth about abortion. Before we dive in, I want to ask you to share the show. You can share it generally with, uh, hey, check out this new podcast, or you can share it strategically, which is probably the most effective method. So when you find yourself having a conversation about one of the topics covered here today, abortion, share the actual show with your debate partner. It's just one of those, hey, have you considered this? Conversations. You don't have to endorse my point of view. Just share it. And finally, please consider supporting the show with a few dollars. I will plow every dollar I get into marketing of the show, trying to expand its reach. See the show notes for links to the patronage page. Okay, on with the show. So at the time when I contemplated what topic to tackle first, I was watching the events unfold in Ireland where they recently had a referendum to repeal a constitutional abortion restriction. I was particularly struck by the images of people cheering in the streets, and I found that a little off-putting. Then I heard a pro-abortion guest on the Laura Ingram show say something to the extent of defining when life begins is, a, is personal opinion. So I was even more off-put by that comment. So with all that in mind, I wanted to tackle this topic first. I figured, why not jump right into the deep end and address one of the most contentious issues of the last 40 years? My goal, for those of you who think abortion is wrong, is twofold. Number one, after listening to this episode, I want you to walk away thinking, I don't have enough faith to be pro-abortion. Not because of feeling that abortion is bad, but because of the concrete facts presented here. And number two, when faced with an abortion advocate, I hope you'll feel more confident in your stand and understand that the easiest way to show even the staunchest pro-abortion advocate the errors of their way is to ask lots of questions. The main one being, what about the baby? So let's dive in. The fundamental questions we must answer on this topic are, number one, is human life worth protecting? Number two, is the taking of human life without proper justification wrong? And finally, number three, when does life begin? So re regarding the first two questions, I think it's safe to say that most people living in the Western, kind of a first world countries agree that human life should be valued and we should do everything we can to protect it. Despite the fact that that belief has been eroded over the last few decades with the rise of pro-abortion movement, assisted suicide, and euthanasia, is still the dominant opinion. We should not take human life without proper justification is typically a normal feeling for most people as well. So that leaves us with the third question. When does this valuable, worth-protecting life begin? I hate to break it to some of you, but, but life begins at conception. Why? Well, the non-scientific answer is because at the moment of conception, something was created where nothing was before, and that something is a human life. If you require a scientific explanation of when life begins, there are numerous embryology textbooks that confirm this. Philosophically speaking, you are the same person today as you were in your mother's womb. The only differences are size, level of development, the environment in which you reside, and the degree of dependency. So let me just talk about each of those briefly. Size, obviously embryos are smaller than a newborn, a newborn is smaller than a two-year-old, etc., etc. So why does size matter if what we are dealing with is a human life worthy of protecting from death? In regards to level of development, 
Embryos are less developed than a newborn. A newborn is less developed than a two-year-old, etc., etc. Why does the level of development matter if what we are dealing with is a human being worthy of protection from death? In regards to the environment, does where you reside change who you are or what you are? Why does the environment matter if what you are dealing with is a human being worthy of protection from death? And finally, the degree of dependency. If viability is the line in the sand that determines which human beings are worthy of protection from death, then following that logic, all of us who are dependent on medications, blood transfusions, insulin, and any other life-saving, life-extending drugs or medical procedures, should we be subject to elective abortion? When you think about it, there's a certain level of bigotry inherent in the abortion debate. We used to discriminate on the basis of skin color and gender. Now we discriminate on the basis of size, level development, location, and degree of dependency. We basically swap one form of bigotry for another. At conception, the DNA dice has already been cast. Human embryos are not some other creature. They're not a cat or a dog or a potato or a rock. They're human embryos. We cannot allow proponents of abortion to ignore the something. We cannot allow them to dehumanize the baby by calling it a fetus, an embryo, or a clump of cells. They must be forced to acknowledge its existence. It is a human being, and as such has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, at least in the United States. From the moment of conception, we are dealing with a living, growing, ever-maturing organism. You can call it whatever you want to make you feel better, but you cannot change the facts. Everyone who is listening right now is a former embryo. So here's the key point, folks. Abortion proponents must be forced to answer the question, what about the baby? If that's the only thing you remember from this episode, what about the baby? What about the baby? What about the baby? Here's a quote from the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, page 185. A baby is not just part of the woman's body. It has its own body with its own unique genetic code, its own blood type and gender. Even if there were doubt as to when life begins, the benefit of the doubt should be given to protecting life. Think about it. Do you hear people ask pregnant women, how's your body? No, of course not. They say, how's the baby? Well, guess what? The baby is developing from the moment of conception. The spinal cord, brain, and nervous system are beginning to be developed around day 18. A baby's heart begins to beat around day 21. A baby's brain coordinates movements around day 43. All the baby's organs are functioning eight weeks after conception. A baby has permanent individual fingerprints ten weeks after conception. A baby has a sense of touch, comfort, pain ten weeks after conception. A baby can smile, suck his thumb, and make a fist twelve weeks after conception. Every time I read these milestones, the idea of boarding a baby becomes more repulsive to me. And if I'm honest, I lose a certain level of respect for those who think the practice is acceptable. So I want to circle back to that life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness comment I made and make sure you see clearly how aborted babies are denied all three. So as you likely know, this expression comes from the Declaration of Independence where it says, We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights that among them are life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Clearly an aborted baby is denied all three. Without life, there is no liberty. Without life, there is no pursuit of happiness. So think about it. One of the reasons we have laws against murder is because as a society, we believe life has value, and therefore we must, it must be protected. It's the government's job to protect its citizens, or at the very least punish those who kill its citizens. As I mentioned, I want pro-lifers to use questions in their debates with pro-abortion advocates. And I want pro-abortionists to answer these questions. 
and I call it questions for skeptics. So here's two. Question for skeptic number one. How does the mere consent of the mother change the intrinsic value of a little human being inside her? Here's another question for skeptics. Does the natural right to be free from harm by others not extend to a baby in the womb? Those are questions that advocates for abortion must answer. They cannot be allowed to brush them off. We are on a quest for truth here. Uncovering the truth requires tough questions to be answered. So what I want to do next is I want to cover some of the most common arguments made by pro-abortion advocates and try to walk through them and give you some ammunition for when you're discussing this topic with people. What we'll find is it requires quite a bit of mental gymnastics to be a proponent of abortion. The arbitrary lines in the sand, the numerous definitions of when life begins, the emotional rights of the mother, and the government has no right to tell a woman what to do with her body arguments all serve to muck up the argument. They conveniently forget the rights of the baby. Here's an objection you'll hear a lot. I am personally opposed to abortion but I would never tell someone else what to do with their body. Okay, so this may apply to you. It certainly applies to many people I know, which is why I'm putting it at the beginning. So I'm going to ask you, those of you who believe this, what about the baby? I want you to think long and hard about that because I'm going to continue to throw it in your face throughout this episode. What about the baby? So are you personally opposed to murder, stealing, lying, spousal abuse, driving while intoxicated, rape? In society, we impose penalties for all these crimes. So why is this thing called abortion subject to a different standard? This is not an issue where everything is relative, shades of gray, so to speak. This is a black and white issue. There is right and there is wrong. People with this opinion about abortion, forgive me for saying this so bluntly, are acting cowardly. We are not discussing a monetary policy of the Federal Reserve. We're talking about the taking of an innocent life and remaining awkwardly silent or indifferent is cowardice. You may as well say that there's no difference between Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler. They just had different preferences. One helped people, one killed them. While I'm opposed to killing people, I would never say that what Hitler did was wrong. Okay, number two, what about rape and incest? I've heard this many times. I've heard it from close family members as well. I've heard the phrase, why should the mother be punished with the baby? This is a perfect example of why we need not feel like you're on the offensive or even trying to convert someone. Sometimes it's as simple as repeating the words back to them. So in this case, punish with a baby. Do these people hear the words that come out of their mouth? A new human life is is a punishment? Someone's future child or grandchild is a punishment? The baby is not responsible for being there. It did not invade the womb. If you follow this logic, the only person being punished after the criminal act, in addition to the criminal, is the baby. The logic is, because A did something bad to B, C should die. So I'll ask you the question, what about the baby? Question for skeptics, and for that matter, wishy-washy pro-lifers. Is it okay to kill an innocent child in the womb in order to avoid having to remember the rape or incest incident every time you look at the child? Does the fact that the child came into being because of a violent act determine that it can be mistreated? Does the fact that the woman has, was violated justify killing the baby? How about a great compromise with the what about rape and incest crap? If I agree to your claim that abortion should be permitted in cases of rape and incest, will you join me in supporting legal restrictions on abortions due to socioeconomic reasons? See, most of the time, the answer to that will be no. So this just becomes an emotional, rhetorical argument, and it's exposed for what it is. It's hollow and empty. All right, number three. If we ban abortions and make it more difficult to get one, it will resort in dangerous back-alley coat-hanger abortions, unnecessarily putting women at risk. So again... 
Let's simply take the argument on its face and see where it leads. So are these people suggesting that we must make killing children safer or else adults might, might get killed in the process? Abortion choice advocates warn that thousands would be killed in back alleys if abortion were illegal. This is the way they justify legalizing the murder of millions. How can you blame a law for making it more risky for one human being to take the life of another? By that logic, we should make shoplifting legal to protect the thief from being manhandled by the merchant. As Scott Klusendorf said, when women aren't forced to have an illegal abortion, they choose to have them. Remember, this is the pro-choice movement. They choose to take an innocent human being's life. Pro-life critic Marianne Warren put it this way, The fact that restricting access to abortion has tragic side effects does not in itself show the restrictions are unjustified, since murder is wrong regardless of the consequences of prohibiting it. Number four, what about poor women who cannot afford to have a baby? Now, this is a great example of the number three of the dirty half dozen that I introduced to you in episode one. These are the recurring tactics used by skeptics. So, you have, just as a reminder, it's malice and name calling, ignorance, emotional arguments, the stiff arm, propaganda, lies, and deception, and drawing arbitrary lines. So, in this case, what about poor women who can't afford a baby? It's an emotional argument. It's number three. There is such a thing as personal responsibility, or at least there used to be. So how about you don't get pregnant if you cannot afford to raise a child? I mean, is, is that too provocative of a statement? If you want to ignore that argument, how about we simply follow the logic of this line of thinking? So financial considerations now justify homicide. By that logic, we should make it legal for poor women to kill all their children because we know they're expensive. Sadly, if you look at the reasons given for having abortions, the majority of the time it is out of social economic concerns of the mother. They want to postpone childbearing. It might be disrupting their education or their employment. A clearly lack of financial support from the father could be an issue. Poverty, unemployment, age of the mother. So in essence, what society is saying is if having a baby gets in the way of the mother's life, that justifies killing the baby. Is that really the hill the pro-abortionists want to die on? Did you know that 92% of abortions are performed on physically healthy women? Did you know that over 2 million couples are waiting to adopt a child at any one time? Virtualmedia.org says, While there may be unwanted pregnancies, there are no unwanted children. What about the baby? Number five, what about we just restrict abortion to after 20 weeks or whatever week number the baby can survive outside the womb? This is the viability argument. This is a quintessential example of number six of the dirty half dozen, drawing arbitrary lines. Listen, folks, killing an unborn human being is either right or wrong. You can try to make yourself feel better by making the argument that it's acceptable in the first trimester or whatever other arbitrary line you draw, but in the end, it's either right or wrong. At what point does the mother have the choice to kill the baby? Anytime before live birth? Up until the heartbeat is present? The first trimester? The second trimester? Up until it can survive outside the womb, the day before the due date. How about a one-year-old, a one-day-old? What's the difference? What if someone is in a comatose state? They meet some of the same criteria as embryos who are being willfully destroyed. Why not these people? If it is acceptable to take the life of a human being on one side of the birth canal, why forbid it on the other? As Greg Kokel says, quote, A seven-inch journey cannot miraculously transform a non-human mass into a valuable human being. Stephanie Gray, co-founder and executive director of the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform, 
explains why this step is so important. She said, Moreover, abortion advocates are making an even greater concession than they realize. Consider the three labels, three months, six months. These reveal the passage of time, and they show that time is being clocked from the beginning point to three to six months prior. So wherever abortion advocates draw the line, they are unwittingly making this major admission that life began where they started the clock of passage of time that brought them to the three to six months. So what happened three to six months before fertilization? And that's when life begins. She went on to explain, quote, If we admit life begins at fertilization, then we have to admit our society is committing and permitting the greatest human rights violation in the history of the world when we allow for the destruction of the youngest of our kind. So you can see why the pro-abortion arguments, the mental gymnastics, on the one hand, they argue that when life begins is arbitrary or undefined, and on the other hand, they make concessions about only aborting babies after X number of months or weeks. How do you determine that they are X months old if you refuse to define when life begins? And if you define when life begins, you are now a proponent of murder. As Scott Klusendorf put it in his must-read, The Case for Life, the right to life comes to be when we come to be. If pro-abortionists want to argue that we come to be three months, six months, nine months, so be it. But it's an arbitrary line either way. Number six, expressions like, if you don't like abortion, don't have one, is often thrown in my face. We can sit around all day and make foolish parallel arguments that follow this logic. If you don't like spousal abuse, don't hit your wife. If you don't like slavery, don't own any. If you are opposed to polygamy, don't marry more than one person. You see how silly and weak these arguments are? So let's be clear about this. Pro-lifers do not oppose abortion solely on the basis of the fact that they personally find the act repulsive. They oppose it because it is morally wrong. You can't walk through life afraid to say so at the neighborhood get-together when the topic is being discussed. Number seven, the government has no right to tell a woman what to do with her body. That may be so, at least in the United States. But the primary purpose of government is to preserve and secure the rights we have from nature, not to create rights. So why shouldn't the government protect babies in the womb? A secondary rebuttal to this argument goes something like this. Since government created the right to abortion in the United States via the Supreme Court in the Roe v. Wade and the Griswold v. Connecticut cases, then government can take those rights away. And pro-abortionists really do not have much in the way of protest. So, question for skeptics. Why is it okay for the government, either through legislation or via the court system, to allow abortion rather than to prevent them? Number eight, the Bible does not mention abortion, therefore you cannot use it as an argument against the practice. Okay, so this is, a, to say the least, an intellectually lazy argument. But the Bible is not like the United States Constitution, which specifically articulates what the federal government can do See Article 1, Section 8, and the subject of the next episode. So this argument boils down to whatever the Bible does not specifically condemn, it condones. The reason I call this argument intellectually lazy is because the Bible doesn't say anything about a lot of things, like uh, drunk driving, school shootings, vehicular manslaughter, racial discrimination. But these acts are not considered morally justified, and society still punishes those who commit such acts. You can, however, dismantle this argument rather easily. See, if this logic works for you, the Bible affirms that humans have value because they bear God's image. 
Science, and the mere matter of an ultrasound image, makes it clear that an unborn baby is a human. Hence, biblical commands against murder apply to the unborn just as they do to other human beings. Here's another interesting rebuttal to this argument. While it is true that the Bible does not specifically mention the practice of abortion, it is also true that the early Christians were Gentiles and Jews. Why is that important? Because early Judaism was firmly opposed to abortion. I will put a lot of this in the show notes page so you can see it, because otherwise I'm going to mispronounce the names. But even the first century uh, Jewish historian Josephus wrote, The law orders all the offspring be brought up and forbids women either to cause abortion or to make away with the fetus. So could it be the reason the Bible is silent on the issue of abortion is because it was unnecessary? They were not tempted to kill their children before or after birth. So that covers the majority of the most common pro-abortion arguments that you may encounter. Now, I want to spend the last couple minutes, I want to offer those of you who wish to be more, a little bit more proactive and offensive-minded, I want to give you some ammunition to further your pro-life discussions with pro-abortion advocates. Let's start with the elephant in the room, partial birth abortion. So basically, ask the person if they're opposed to this practice. If they are familiar with the, with the procedure, ask them to explain it to you. If they are unfamiliar with it, you explain it to them. So here it is. It's a procedure where the fetus is pulled feet first by the abortionist until the back of the head is visible, at which time the abortionist jams a pair of scissors into the baby's skull. The scissors are then opened to enlarge the hole while a suction catheter is inserted into the hole and the baby's brains are sucked out, causing the skull to collapse. The dead baby is then removed. How despicable and disgusting is that? But look, we didn't develop the procedure. We are not advocates for the procedure. We are simply describing it. And honestly, anyone who supports the use of this procedure is a sick piece of garbage. Continuing a conversation with them seems useless. However, this is a very important conversation for those pro-abortion advocates who are unaware of the procedure or support it in name only. This is a case of not really knowing what you believe. As I stated in episode 1, most people are never forced to articulate why they believe what they believe. The intellectual exercises of defending their position is often enough to get them to think twice. If they oppose the practice, ask them to explain how they can support regular abortion and not partial birth abortion. You will begin to notice the mental gymnastics required to maintain this position. Number two, ask them if they are opposed to state laws that require women seeking an abortion to receive an ultrasound, or mandatory waiting periods, or mandatory counseling, or to be provided adoption advocacy, or ask them if they are opposed to state requirements that abortion clinics have hospital admitting rights prior to being able to do abortions. Ask them to explain why or why not. The key point here is to get to the heart of the issue. If they answer no to any of those things, you're dealing with someone unwilling to even consider protecting life. They are unwilling to allow efforts to be made to help change the woman's mind. Really think about that for a minute. These folks oppose efforts to change the mother's mind. Let that sink in. What is that other than pure evil? The people who articulate these positions may not be evil, but their policy stance certainly is. Again, by forcing them to articulate their position, hopefully they may realize how zealous their support for abortion is, given that they will not even give the mother a chance to reconsider. Several years ago, Massachusetts legislature passed a law prohibiting pro-life protesters within, I want to say, 30 feet of an abortion facility. How sick is that? Most of the time, these people just want to pray for the women to can reconsider the procedure. They are trying to save a life, but a liberal legislative body and court system cannot allow that. 
Some have suggested that women who seek an abortion should be forced to watch a video of the abortion procedure. Is that cruel? What about the baby? Number three, ask them if your tax dollars should be used to perform abortions. If they answer yes, ask them if we can use half of those dollars or get matching funds to educate women about their options, like adoption. Number four, ask them how they reconcile their belief that abortion is no different than an elective surgery when numerous states will charge criminals with double murder if they kill a pregnant woman. How does the state reconcile their laws? One that allows elective abortion and one that prosecutes for the murder of a baby in a similar state of growth. How do you reconcile the fact that on one hand there are medications that cannot be taken by pregnant women because the drug will harm the baby, and on the other hand we can kill the baby without another thought? I hope you see that the abortion debate is not one that you should shy away from. I understand that most people are non-confrontational. Why argue with your friend about abortion? What good will that do? On the other hand, how can you remain silent if you find it morally wrong at best and murder at worst? I hope you see that through the use of questions and by following pro-abortion's arguments to their most logical conclusion, you can plant seeds of doubt in their minds. Your goal is to simply force them to think, what about the baby, every time they think about abortion.